All right. Well, again, happy Sunday morning uh, to everyone, and uh, good to have you here this morning. I'm happy to be here. Happy I'm not in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, it's a you know um, this kind of a side thought. It's not really part of the lesson per se, but um, you know, just thinking and when things are you know not going well in various ways. So we got things in our country that aren't really trending well. And I'm not just talking about the economy, although you got that. Um, but like, for example, here locally, from what I understand, on the outside looking in, through the eyes of some parents who have interacted with the public school districts, um, they have adopted uh, a lot of gender identity issues and woke agenda. So it's officially adopted and being and pushed in the local public schools. Um, and so that's the route we're going. And uh, yet you look into the New Testament and you see the, the early church thriving in a Roman Empire that was far worse. I mean, do we know of any political leaders that have been assassinated, killed? Assassinated is probably not the right word, but martyred uh, for their Christian faith. Any of our church leaders been crucified lately? Um, if the early church could thrive in the Roman Empire under fierce persecution, and yet the church of God grew, uh, then I think we can do that too. Uh, things are worse, perhaps, in some ways than they once were, um, and yet um, the church of God can thrive. So we can I think we can be encouraged in that. Uh, that'll go, uh, to some extent, uh, towards our topic of the day, our um, slide here. Um, we're in a series, um, you might call it theology, um, I'm thinking of this doctrine of God as part one in that, and really just looking at a lot of teachings in the Bible, basic uh, Bible teachings, and uh, spending some time focusing on that. So here, doctrine of God, what are some basic uh, doctrines or teachings about God in the Bible? Uh, but um, as we delve into this, we'll see in God himself, in his character and who he is and how he operates, that yeah, God's got everything under control. Um, and God's, God's kingdom will not be stopped by man. His will will not be thwarted by man. Uh, God will accomplish uh, the things he desires to accomplish. That's what he's done all through human history. Uh, we've seen him accomplish exactly what he wanted to in the face of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans. Um, none of them thwarted the plan of God. And under God's sovereignty, um, sometimes things like the actions of evil men are used by God for good, such as the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, to, to crucify, execute a man when he's not guilty of anything is a travesty of justice. And so what was done to him was evil, um, what um, the Jewish leadership did to him was evil. Um, but God used that evil for good. So he's, God's not the author of the evil, um, but God uses man. man. Man might try to stop him. They tried to stop Jesus. Uh, people might think, or even Satan himself might think, that they're going to be successful, and yet they have no idea. It, it's like me playing a chess master. I think I just made a good move on him. And I have no idea what's going on around me. I don't even see the attack he has planned. 
he sees exactly what I'm doing because I'm so, such a novice at chess, and this grandmaster sees the whole picture, and he's, he's going to run circles around me. And no, no matter how much I think I'm successful at any moment in time, I'm going to get squashed like a bug. Um, and so it's kind of like that with man. Um, devise all the plans you want. You can't stop God. And so, well, that's not really specifically today's lesson, but we are talking about God uh, as part of this first unit. Uh, so we're in the doctrine of God. Uh, we'll go back to last week's lesson, so I'll go to my next uh, slide. And I'll just finish off a few things. Um, we um, got through the majority of last week's lessons. Excuse me while I'm pushing off a sneeze here. Okay. I don't know how you try to fight sneezes. I find it works well. I push on my nose like this and takes the feeling away. Okay, tip for the day. All right. So we spent um, last week all on this one slide with the three points that are here. You know, how, how do we know that God exists? And so um, there is inside of everyone this sense of there being a God, um, that all cultures of the world have a concept of a deity. And you know, so why is that true? There's this inner sense that there's something there. Uh, some have even described it as there's a God-shaped hole in the heart that only God can fill. Now what mankind has done in his fallen state with his, with his sin nature causing him to not come to right conclusions or to reject you know, even the revelation that God gives um, has caused uh, cultures to come up with concepts of God that are not true. And so it gets twisted around in different directions. Thus, you know, all the cultures of the world have a concept of God, but they don't all have uh, recognition of the one true God, uh, but yet it's there, and there's evidence in Scripture. Scripture itself proclaims uh, that there's a God, and uh, we could get, we're not doing this uh, as part of this series, but um, we could go into evidences that the Scripture is trustworthy. But then uh, God says in the Scriptures that nature itself teaches you, and so people uh, look out um, into nature and are convinced of God's existence. Um, I was uh, reading an article uh, this last week by a physics professor who uh, teaches, or at least at one time taught at a, a Christian school um, out, out of state, and the professor was talking about his own um, testimony of conversion to Christianity um, as this you know, as his physics person, he was a he was a physics um, PhD physics. Um, I don't know if he was a professor before he was a Christian, but he had his PhD in physics, and he was pointing to physics itself led him to conclusions about there being something greater than than this. And so, um, Christianity is not something that only the ignorant uh, would embrace as as some sometimes suggest that or it's not you know the concept of god is not something left over from our primate past where we just feel like there has to be something more than this but now we've evolved to the point where you know, we now know better and we don't need to uh, think this way anymore so it's almost seen as like a crutch or a weakness for people uh, so some characterize it and yet educated individuals as well as uneducated 
have this sense from nature that there's something there. Some will deny it, as the Book of Romans 1 says, uh, that they'll, um, they, they have the evidence there, but they will not acknowledge God as God, and they will deny that, and, and then they'll turn to God's creation and focus on that and worship that rather than God, not recognizing God. So that was last week. That's a lot of what we spent time on. Of course, we said, obviously, more than that. That was just review. I'm going to go to my next slide. The next uh, four slides have um, some thoughts. That, even though I, I have one slide on the majority of last week's lesson, and I, ha- I have four slides on something that I didn't want to spend a lot of time on, but it just uh, made sense for me to design it that way. Um, these are logical proofs. So let me take you back to high school. Remember that? Okay, that time of torture? <laughs> Of course, you probably don't feel that way. You look back and say, I wish I had homework. <laughs> okay, so uh, geometry, learning logical proofs. And, of course, um, these kind of proofs are logical proofs. And when you, when you do proofs, which, I, by the way, I've had the fun of teaching geometry. Now, I'm one of those people who likes math. Um, that, that was just my natural tendency from the time I was little. It's just kind of, just like some people are naturally artistic or musical, I was naturally math oriented um, but so I enjoy uh, teaching geometry one of my favorite math courses uh, to teach uh, but geometry one of my favorite things in there is the proofs and you take all these postulates and theorems you might remember those dirty words from high school geometry well postulates are just assumed truths and you start also with definitions of words and you have some words that are undefined and you have to and it in any kind of system of logic, you have to have a starting point. And your starting point is not based upon anything else. Otherwise, there'd be something else that is the starting point. You start with something. Whatever, and that's why in geometry, they start with undefined uh, words. Words, uh, I mean, they define them with English words, but they themselves, you, I mean, imagine this. If you started a language and you created a first word, what words would you use to define it? There are no other words. It's the first word. And that's what they show you in geometry. You start with uh, some basic words, point, line, space, area. Um, You start with those. And, of course, we have the English language to actually give them definitions. But the point there is those are not shown to be true by previous geometry thoughts. They're the starting point. And from there, you work your way forward. And then you go into something called postulates, which are assumed truths. They're, They're things that seem to be so obvious like the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, seems to be, okay, like, well, if you went around some other way, not straight there, seems like it would be longer, so this must be the shortest point, and yet it's a statement that's not proven to be true, it just seems obviously true, we accept that. So it doesn't matter what someone's um, uh, logical thinking system is, they have to start with these things, there's no option. You start with things that are assumed, or even undefined, and you build your system of logic on that. In geometry, then you go to things called theorems. And theorems are statements that are, that are shown logically to be true using prior uh, either postulates that you accepted as true or prior, prior theorems that were proven to be true. And so you base this system of logic. So, you, so you're drawing conclusions after you have... You've said, well, because of this, and because of this, and because of this, I believe this is true. And, you, and, and that's what logic is. Logic is 
reasoning that is sound, that is based upon true statements. Now, if you base your reasoning on statements that aren't true, you've got a problem. Or if your thinking isn't logical. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a person can have thinking that isn't logical, okay? such as it takes clouds to form rain, and there's clouds outside and water dropping from the sky and hitting me, I conclude it's not raining. What? Okay. The, the, the thinking is off. So you, you can be wrong in logic if your statements aren't true. Okay. So I could say, like I'll pick on Jonathan here. I could say, a person that looks like me must be related to me. Jonathan looks like me. He must be related to me. Now, the, the reasoning is correct. The problem is the statements aren't true. Uh, just because someone looks like me doesn't mean they're related to me. That's not true. And I don't think Jonathan looks like me, except to the extent that we're similar being both humans. Like we do have, I mean, we look alike in some ways. We both, we have, both have two ears, two arms, two legs. I mean, there's a lot of things, actually, that are similar, but not, not enough to confuse us for brothers. Or, or maybe, I, maybe, I shouldn't, you know, maybe I'm thinking too, uh, uh, too young of myself to call myself, but maybe I should be like grandpa or father, you know. <laughs> okay. But anyways... So these are logical proofs. So we'll go to our first slide in this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, um, but one is called a cosmological argument. Um, It considers the fact that every known thing in the universe has a cause. So this is a a logical proof saying, well, if something happened, something must have caused it. Now, of course, in that line of thinking, there has to be an original cause, and an original cause can't have been caused by something else. Now, I once asked this question as a young guy, even younger than Jonathan. Because Jonathan's not as young as he used to be, but he's still younger than me, so he can always have bragging rights on that one. Um, when I was mm, probably 18 or 19, my first year in college, I went to Gavilan for one year. And the professor in the, in the biology class was talking about evolution. And... Um, and I definitely wasn't in a place in my education and my thinking skills and so forth to really sit there and debate with anyone on that type of topic. So I didn't actually try to debate, but I did ask a question, which is talking about the Big Bang. I just raised my hand and said, do scientists know where the material came from? And I didn't say it this way, but the material that banged. <laughs> where did that come from? And she said, no, we don't know that. So, I mean, the logic there is either it's self-existent, it's always existed and never came from anywhere, or it appeared out of nothing, or something caused it. And um, so a lot of times in, so like in hers, you also have to start with, like I said, assumptions. You have to start with starting points. You have no options. And those starting points you can't necessarily prove, and you have to accept them by faith. Um, it's a lot easier for them to start with matter and then theorize how it might have done this and might have done that, uh, but to explain how it got there in the first place, there's no explanation uh, for that. Well, the cosmological argument is this argument, in fact, uh, if we look at our things here, yeah, whatever exists had a cause, the universe began to exist, there must have been a cause. It's very logical. Now, this is only true if the statements are true, uh, does everything that exists has a cause, or does something self-existent? 
and did the universe have a beginning or has it always been there so if those statements aren't true this isn't a true argument uh, but if it's true then you you come to the the obvious question well what was the cause now there is a movement in uh, Christian circles called the intelligent design movement and it attempts to uh, do this type of argument without um, necessarily saying what the cause is but making the logical argument there has to be a cause um, I think it's a, an attempt to argue these points from outside of scripture and I think not you know with good intent that many people reject the Bible as authoritative so how can you try to uh, debate with them without going to the Bible which they won't accept and so I think that's what the uh, attempt is all right I won't spend more on that particular argument uh, let's go to a second uh, argument then the tele teleological argument uh, it's a subcategory of the cosmological argument. It focuses on the evidence of harmony, order, and design in the universe and argues that, and by the way, that's what the word teleological refers to, um, like orderliness and design. It argues that its design gives evidence of an intelligent purpose. Since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must be an intelligent and purposeful God created uh, that created it to function it that way. Now, of course, it, um, and this is what uh, the Christian faith uh, purports, because it's what the Bible communicates, uh, that God is that original cause, and he himself has no cause. God's self-existent. Um, so again, these two kind of go together. There's a third proof um, called the ontological argument. The ontological argument begins with the idea of God, uh, who is defined as being greater than, than which nothing can be imagined. So he's like the ultimate. You can't get greater than God. Okay, so then it argues that the characteristic of, of existence must have belonged to such a being since it is greater to exist than not to exist. <laughs> or, in trying to process this myself, I looked for some things and I put this little cartoonish version so it's like you think of the greatest concept ever now imagine that greatest concept does not exist well then that's not as great as imagining it does exist so if you're thinking of so if what you're thinking of is really so great it has to exist now, I'm not sure I like this line of thinking that much but uh, that's out there um, okay, that's one argument. I don't think I'll spend more time on that except to summarize. You think of the biggest thing ever, and then you think of two scenarios. That biggest thing ever exists or does not. Well, does not is not as great as does, so it must be that it does. <laughs> okay. All right, that's one logical argument that's out there. And then lastly is a moral argument. <laughs> kind of along those lines, I suppose. And those kind of philosophical things, such as that statement, go back to the idea you have to have a starting place. Um, it's just we have no options on that. Okay? And so then the moral argument begins from man's sense of right and wrong and the need for justice to be done and argues that there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong and who will someday mete out justice to all people. Uh, it goes something like this. 
If God does not exist, moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Now, those who would uh, not be convinced by this would say, well, I don't agree that moral values depend upon God. Morality can come through some other way. And so I think these particular arguments, like I said, these are just logical proofs that some people try to come up with. They're not ultimately... Uh, I think that helpful or very convincing. This is my opinion now. I don't think they lead people to Christ. Um, but perhaps they could be helpful, maybe as part of the process, someone might think about them and maybe are helped. But ultimately, and I'll go to my next uh, slide here, the final thoughts on last week's lesson. Um, only God can overcome our sin and enable us to be persuaded of his existence. So as much as we might want to use these various proofs, um, 1 Corinthians 2.13 that we have on the slide here, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay. And then John 6.44, uh, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise them up at the last day. Um, these are just but uh, two of a number of verses in the Bible that teach us that um, man in his natural state does not approach God and desire him. Man in his natural state rejects God. And in his sin, natural, of course, be in his sin nature. And so without the drawing of God, without the help of God, we don't discern spiritual groups. Uh, spiritual truths so ultimately um, it, we have to have God so I, do, I don't think you can logically debate someone into becoming a Christian although God might use the thoughts in that debate to open eyes of understanding draw them to himself but ultimately it's going to be God that's going to do this alright um, okay so I'm going to move into our next lesson then so now we're in lesson two, and we'll get into the character of God. So we'll start off with talking about our next slide, the knowability of God. Okay, so first, uh, last lesson was, is there some evidence or some thought that God exists? The, the main thoughts that are proposed in Scripture, nature tells you he exists. He provides enough evidence, so we're out without excuse. And the scriptures confirm this. And we have an inner sense as well, which is almost like a part of nature, naturally within us as well as in the universe um, it is. But if, okay, so if God exists, then can, can we actually know him? Uh, is he someone that we can approach in any way or learn more about? Okay. And so a thought here is that yes and we've already touched on this um, in Romans chapter 1 through general revelation and creation sometimes it's referred to that general revelation that revelation that's revealed generally to everyone everyone has that inner sense everyone has the ability to understand there's a God from creation and so God though in that doesn't just reveal that he's there but there's things about God himself that he shows to them and that uh, phrase there, for God hath showed it to him, is from Romans chapter 1. I'll just read verses 19 and 20. 
because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so there specifically mentions his power and his rulership. He's God, his Godhead, his, his authority as God are revealed. And um, I don't think this is uh, saying that those are, those are the only things that are revealed, uh, but those things in particular are mentioned as being revealed by God. Uh, sometimes uh, theologians will have a category that they call special revelation. Um, this would be God revealing in himself ways that are not just generally out there, such as in nature. Um, the word of God is an example of God's special revelation, uh, that he specifically reveals himself in God's word. And so that's a uh, second category here, the scriptures. And God reveals himself in salvation and, and in our walk with God. For example, the Bible says one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. And so um, that, of course, begins with salvation because that's the beginning of a relationship with God where we have the Holy Spirit uh, with us. And so um, through these things, then, we have the opportunity to learn more about God. And that leads us into um, our, really, the, the, the bulk of today's lesson, and it'll be the next lesson as well. Um, and we can learn through the special revelation of God in Scripture something about God himself. Now, the character of God is not, I mean, parts of it are revealed through creation, but there's a lot that's not. So when we look into the scriptures, uh, what can we learn about God in the scriptures? Well, um, I'll just uh, uh, read an opening statement. It's, it's just my own words, but um, some of God's attributes are unique to him and are not shared by humans, while others are able to be shared by humans. Um, so, for example, on that, God is eternal. But we're not eternal. We, we had a beginning, he did not. We are finite, he is infinite. That's an example where there are some attributes that we don't share. We're not eternal. Although when you think about it, we have a, an aspect of being eternal. Now we had a beginning, but we will live somewhere forever. And so I guess on one end of it, we're eternal beings with a soul that will be somewhere. But we're not eternal like God is. Uh, how about God is love? Well, we can love. That's an attribute that we have that can reflect something that God has. But God's love is different than ours. It's more complete. It's more pure. Um, but um, we are able to have that attribute. Reminds me when I uh, talk about these, going back to the Garden of Eden, um, actually prior to the Garden of Eden even, the creation of man and um, man was created in the image of God. And so I think a, a large meaning behind that is we can reflect God's character. But even as we do, we don't reflect it completely. Uh, it's not, we, we don't become God or we don't have his character completely. Um, but there are some attributes, even if we didn't have sin, like if we didn't have sin, we could love perfectly. But we do have sin. It twists that, it mars it, it distorts it. Um, like that saying, you always, maybe it's a song, I feel like it's a song, you always hurt the ones you love, the ones you shouldn't hurt at all. 
I forget what the name of that is. If, uh, if you say it out loud, by the way, I'm going to make you sing it. So if you want to tell me what, anyone want to tell me what the name is? I'm going to have you come up here, be online, get it recorded. <laughs> it's, your, it's your chance for a recording session. You always wanted to be a singer? Here's your chance. Okay, no, no takers. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we didn't have a sin nature, we could love perfectly. Um, I still don't know that it would have the, the, the breadth that God has on that issue. But if we didn't have a sin nature, we wouldn't all of a sudden be, become eternal like God is. Or other attributes we'll get later, like God's all-powerful. We'll never be all-powerful even when our sin nature is taken away. So some attributes of God um, we don't have, but some are transmitted or given to us as we even are an image or reflection of him. Okay, So... When we look at God's character, one of the things that we could say is God's character in the Bible is revealed uh, through his name. Now, when, when I think of that first line there, we'll get the anthropomorphic language. We'll get to that in a second. So just ignore that uh, for a moment. But the first point here, revealed through his names. Well, if you're like me, the first thing I thought of were actual names of God, like Elohim or just simply El, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai. Um, these are given in the Bible as actual names of God. And so, yes, that's part of this, revealed in his names. Uh, those, those things have meaning to, the, uh, to them that reveals something about God. Now, the name El or Elohim is just kind of a, a name that just means God uh, there, um, but oftentimes that's combined with something else. I mentioned to one of the students, and I didn't think he had any clue. Um, his name is Joel. And I just said to him, you know, I said, when I think of your name, I, I feel like I'm tempted to pronounce it Joel, not Joel. Joel. Because it's act, I said, did you know that half your name is, I mean, is the word God, L? Uh, your name is Joel. And I forget uh, what the first part means. It's, it's something like um, you know, God saves or God does something else. Um, a lot of the names in the Bible are that way, such as the city Bethel. We sometimes want to say Bethel. I'm tempted to say Bethel. House of God is what that one means, so I actually remember that one. Um, yeah, El and Elohim mean God. Sometimes they're used for um, gods that are false gods. Um, so when you see uh, gods in the Bible that are false gods, um, so th sometimes that's actually the same word El, um, or even Elohim. Uh, so that's just a generic word that means God. Um, and it does reveal something about God, that he is God. But um, they're sometimes combined with things like the name of God, El Shaddai, meaning Almighty God. And when God reveals a, a name like that in the Bible, we learn something about who he is through that name. Um, the name... Yahweh refers to being self-existent or eternal. Um, he is the great I am. He's that original cause. Uh, he is self-existent. Nothing caused God. He just simply exists. Um, or sometimes that name Yahweh is described this way. He who makes that which has been made. Um, so he is the self-existent eternal God. Or Another name for God, Adonai, which is a name for a master or a lord with a small L. 
like in medieval times, the Lord of a manor. Uh, so sometimes that name is used for humans who are maybe princely or, or a ruler of some kind. They're referred to as master. And sometimes it's used of God because he is to be our master or our Lord, our ruler. So that, yes, those are examples of names of God that actually communicate something about who God is. Uh, but this, uh, this thought, this topic goes beyond that. Um, it goes to things that are uh, beyond just the name. Oh, I meant, uh, let me just say this since I have it in here. Here's another one uh, that's um, a name of God that adds extra things to it. Uh, see if I can pronounce this. Be'er lakiroi. Okay, it's a long word. Okay, this is found in Genesis sixteen thirteen, and in many Bible translations, that word's actually there. Because here's what it says. She, speaking of Sarah, Abraham's wife, she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked upon him that sees me? So she was recognizing something about God. God sees me. He's, he's paying attention to me. So then the next verse says, Wherefore the well was called Be'er Lachroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. Well, that name, uh, the definition of that is Well of the Living One Seeing Me. Um, capital, capitalized Living One. So she named the well, this is the well of the one who sees me. Okay. Well, sometimes that uh, is given in Scripture, and oftentimes it reveals something about God. God pays attention. God's watching. He cares. He's looking. Uh, she she felt that, okay, God didn't forget about me. He saw me. He, he remembered me. And so we can learn something about who God is through these types of names. But some of the names are other things, uh, maybe things you wouldn't quite think of as a name. And I've looked at them and said, well, I don't know if I quite think of it as a name, but it's a description at least. Um, some of these are uh, metaphors or similes. Um, you, and perhaps we could think of them as names that are a description of his characters. Here are some examples. <coughs> um, he, God is a lion, an eagle. By the way, the verses here listed for all of these, but... I'll read it to read it more smoothly without naming all the references, but he's a lion, an eagle, a lamb, a hen. He's the sun, the morning star, a light, a fire, a fountain, a rock, a shield, a temple. Now, um, in the sources I'm using, that's not, of course, the complete list. I just chose some of them because I didn't figure you want me to stand here and you know, read for 10 minutes a list like that. Um, but enough to provide some examples, though, of these. And so I'll, I'll uh, read more specifically about one of the examples. And this is found in Isaiah chapter 31. Okay. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and depend upon, the, words, the word is stay, they stay on horses, meaning depend upon or lean upon like someone leaning upon a staff they go down to Egypt and, and depend upon horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel neither see the Lord now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses flesh not spirit when the Lord shall stretch out his hand both he that helps 
and he that is helped shall fall down or fail, and they shall fail together. For thus saith the Lord, uh, for, uh, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, and now here comes that, you know, that kind of name, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor um, shy away from the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, and for the hill thereof, which is Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which is uh, on a hilly area. Okay. So basically he's saying there, okay, Israel, big mistake. You think you're going to go down to Egypt and you're going to depend upon those people down there to save you from the Assyrians? That's not who you should be depending upon. That kind of thinking is going to fail. I, like a lion, when I, see a, when I have a prey that I've caught, and I see maybe a group of shepherds coming at me with sticks and stuff. When, I'm, when I am focused on my prey and I'm determined not to lose it, I'm not going to be scared by that group coming at me, even though there's a bunch of them. And so God was basically teaching in this example, like a lion, um, I, I'm not going to get scared by the Assyrians or the Egyptians. Um, I'm not going to be stopped in what I want to do. And so therefore we can learn something about God's character when he describes himself as a lion uh, this way, using uh, this simile that's here, which is a comparison using the words like or as. And in this case, he used both of them. Okay? And very next verse, by the way, verse 5 says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. And the thought behind this is like, a, you've seen this, we've all seen this at some point in our lives, when uh, a baby birds in a nest are being threatened, and the mama bird's like freaking out, flying around, <laughs> trying to scare, trying to distract, you know, keep that cat away from the nest. Well, as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. And so then he uses this idea, okay, I, like a bird, that's, that's my thoughts toward Jerusalem. I'm going to fly in there and do everything I can uh, to help. But unlike a, a mama bird, which I've seen it before, where the mama bird was helpless, like she can't really stop the cat, she can hopefully maybe distract them or you know, lead them away, but she can't actually go down and do anything to the cat. Um, well, God's not that way. So, but he has the resolve to help, is what that verse was teaching. And so um, these are examples, where there, there, and there's many in the Bible, where God reveals himself through things like that. We can learn more about his character uh, and who he is. And so... Uh, one of the things that um, also is here, this anthropomorphic language, um, anthro refers to humans, um, morph refers to the shape of, and so anthropomorphic language is language that is reminiscent or takes on the shape of humans. Well, this is, would be when God is sometimes described in human uh, terms. Okay, um, so scripture can speak of, and again, I have references to all of these but i won't read the references with it um scripture can speak of god's face or his countenance like how he looks eyes ears nose mouth lips tongue neck arms fingers heart foot etc like all these body parts god's described as having these body parts 
Now, I don't, uh, God is a spirit, we're told, and, and I don't think God has these body parts, but these body parts are used to communicate something to us. Now, one of the points that is often made is that the reason these types of things, like birds and lions, eagle, body parts, why does God describe himself with these things when these things aren't actually who he is? He's not a lion, he's not a bird, he's not a human with body parts. Well, I think the, the best answer, the answer that is um, usually the answer that uh, theologians mention, that he puts things in terms we can understand. We, we understand things we can see. I mean, man's, we're really limited by our five senses. If I can't see it, or hear it, or smell it, or taste it, or touch it, sometimes it doesn't feel that real. So probably we've, we've sensed the reality of a lot of things in this room. Have you at all sensed the reality of the television signals that are flying around in here? You know, we, can't, we can't detect them. If we could get a device that could pick those up and translate that into a visible image on a television, then we could watch TV, you know, with a, bring in an old, old television set that actually has antennas sticking on it, and pick them up because they're here. But... And, and we know, uh, because we've had ways to show that they're here, we know that they're here, um, because we're familiar with televisions and we know that that happens. And yet there are some things that we don't have any devices to do that that are equally as real, like the spirit world. Is God here? Well, we can't, we don't have any way of proving that scientifically, which basically, scientifically means our five senses, or instruments that are designed to enhance our five senses. And yet we don't have that ability uh, to detect that. But they, those are also real. So I think what God has done is taken things that are true about himself as a spirit and tries to communicate them, them in ways that humans will comprehend and understand. And so he, he puts them in these ways for our benefit so that we will understand and therefore benefit by the descriptions of these things. Now, a little side thought on this. Uh, once, I forget who it was, because it's been a long time, there was, I, I believe it was a, a traveling speaker coming through our church, like an evangelist or someone like that. And they mentioned um, an interaction they had had, uh, because this person specialized, uh, I shouldn't say specialized, but maybe I should. Um, one of their major ministries was addressing the Mormon faith. And he was known as a speaker on that topic. And he was, he was describing, I believe it was here in our church, or I heard him somewhere else, he was describing once when he was speaking, and he was basically saying, God is a spirit. He was, he's not a human. He's not man. Because the Mormon faith teaches, and here's a phrase that's used to kind of describe his teaching, as man is, God once was. And as God is, man may someday become. So the Mormon faith teaches that God used to be a human. And humans now, if you're a good Mormon, you can become a god of your own world. And so they, um, they have little subtle ways of wording it that, for example, they'd say, well, there, yep, there's only one god. And by that, they mean there's only one god of this world, not that there's only one god anywhere. And so... When you're talking to one, it can be hard if you don't realize that they seem to agree with Christian doctrine on a lot of things, and yet they vastly differ. Um, and he was speaking of that, that God is a spirit, and he, he doesn't have a physical body like us, uh, nor did he ever. And, 
And someone stood up, a Mormon, wanted to challenge that. And he said, and I don't know, remember what verse he pointed to, but he, he pointed to one of the verses in the Bible that showed that, you know, talked about God having arms or legs or eyes or things like that. And, he's, and so the guy who was speaking said, okay. Um, he didn't challenge him on that. He said, well, now will you turn, I believe he turned to Psalm 91 verse 2. He said, well, will you turn to Psalm 91 verse 2 and would you read that for us? And that verse says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. Uh, by the way, it's two and following. My God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the uh, fowler, meaning the one who's hunting birds, and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings shall you trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. So, so then the speaker said, well, now I suppose you're saying God's a big chicken because <laughs> he has feathers and wings. Um, well, there wasn't really an answer to that. I think he just had to sit down or I don't know what happened. Um, but uh, the, the point is these things are, you know, they're not actually who God is, but they're communicating something about him, and that's how we should understand that. Okay? So as we continue in our lesson here, we'll go to self-existent. Uh, so this is one of the characteristics of God in the scriptures. So now we, we're going to start with um, a characteristic at a time and take a look at those. Okay? So God does not, th this idea of self-existent, God does not need us or the rest of creation or anything. Okay? In other words, he is able to exist on his own without these things. So the concept is that he didn't create creation because he couldn't live without it or he had a need for it in some way that he had to have that. I mean, we think of things that we need. We, we need food or we will cease to exist. Um, he didn't need creation, otherwise he wouldn't exist. He existed for eternity without creation, which is an interesting concept. If there's no beginning, then eternity... <laughs> I mean, how long was, you know... Now, this is my human, totally unsatisfactory way of wording this, because uh, I don't know if God really floats, but how long was God floating around in nothingness before he decided to create? I recognize in that, I mean, it's delving into an area I can't really comprehend because that assumes there's something called time. And I think God's outside of time and he created time. So when I say how long was he floating around, well, that presupposes time as if you could actually have a clock there timing this. Um, I don't really understand the concept of eternity and I can't figure that out. Um, I can, I, I'm bound by time, and I, that's the way my mind works. I, it's hard to think without thinking of time. Um, so I don't think I'm going to understand that um, there. But God was prior to creation, and I don't know exactly what he was doing. But the point here is that he was self-existent, and he, and he did not need anything. Now here are some verses in the Bible uh, that teach this. Acts 17, verse 24. Okay. Acts 17, 24 says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, 
seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Okay, so, yeah, he didn't create this because he needed it. Okay, um, well, we might ask, is, you know, did God get lonely? Maybe he created mankind because he was lonely. Well, um, one commentator says, among the persons of the Trinity, there has been perfect love and fellowship and communication for all eternity. And you get a, a glimpse of this in the book of John, chapter 17. In verse 5, this is Jesus speaking. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then in, in verse 24 of the same chapter, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold your glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there was fellowship amongst the Godhead, the, the, the Trinity, which is one of those other concepts that's hard to fathom. Uh, I, none of us really get that, but we get that God communicates the truth of it. Uh, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God, the, uh, the Son, come in the flesh, fellowshiped with the other parts of the Trinity for eternity. There was perfect love and communication. God was uh, The glory of God was there. And so... God did not need creation. That doesn't mean, though, that creation can't bring him glory. Or it doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy what he created. It doesn't mean that he can't enjoy us, our relationship with him. Um, he enjoys these things, but he didn't do it because he had to or he needed to. All right. Um, I think I'll go ahead and pause there. I was actually going to do one more point. Uh, so we'll pick up with this next point. Um, I, so I was intending to stop right after this one, but it's 1040, and that's a good stopping point. So we'll continue with the immutability of God uh, next week. And uh, then some of these uh, points that we'll make, uh, some of them we'll spend more time on, some of them less time. So some of them it was just like, here's a characteristic of God, make a few comments, move on. Immutability, though, is not one of those. Uh, there's a, a number of thoughts I'd like to share on that. So we'll save that uh, for next week. Of course, the word immutable, as it says here, not changeable. They stay in the same. All right. Well